Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to A Thousand Tiny Steps. In this podcast, I share my stories of love, loss, triumphs, and tragedy as I continue to trace my steps backward and ponder what led to the death of my daughter, Molly. If you're ready to laugh, cry, shake your head in disbelief, or simply listen, and tie, buckle, slip on, or lace up your shoes, and join me as we begin our A Thousand Tiny Steps. Hey, everybody. Barb Higgins here, welcoming you to episode 96 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. So it's 4th of July here in the United States of America, so happy 4th of July to everyone. Recording my podcast in the beginning of June, knowing that it will air on the 4th of July, can sometimes create a conundrum for me on talking about my current life, knowing that nobody will hear it for a month and things will be very different then. Having said that, some of the things I'm going through now coincide perfectly with a 4th of July release date. And so here it is. Here's my little connection. I saw a Facebook status today from somebody who's just so angry that she has so many people on her feed that are really prejudiced and say hateful things. It just got me to thinking about how sad that is. And then it got me thinking a bit bigger. This is a person who I know also has very strong feelings and opinions about very controversial things. And there could be people with very different beliefs than hers that would find her to be equally as prejudiced. Knowing her, I know that there really isn't a prejudicial bone in her body when it comes to just sort of flagrant, non-committal prejudice. She asks questions and always wants to know the full side of everything before she makes a decision. And she also wouldn't utter words to be mean. But it really got me thinking about how our beliefs and the way that we are and how we manage ourselves day to day and what we say and think and how we operate and function can sometimes affect people in ways that we don't quite predict. Fourth of July, when I was growing up, was like the birth of our nation. Yay, the birth of our nation. And I always felt very proud to be an American on this particular day. When I was a little girl, social studies was delivered out of a book, and it was a very white man's version. The Western Europeans that came here to escape what they felt was a regime, a form of government, a lifestyle that didn't allow them to be themselves. So they came to the new free America and claimed it as their own. And there's nothing wrong with fleeing a place that keeps you from being who you are. But you can't remove somebody from their place and declare it your own once you leave. And now, now that I know how horrible some of the earliest Western European Americans were to the Native Americans that lived here already, I have a hard time with the 4th of July. I also think fireworks are really scary for animals and bad for the environment. So as pretty as they are to look at, I'm not a fan sometimes. And so happy 4th of July, right? We got away from those horrible British people that were keeping us from practicing our puritanical religions. And when I look back on it, I think, wow, it's crazy, crazy, leaving crazy to perpetuate a different kind of crazy. And, and that's not necessarily fair either. But growing up, I always felt that we were the underdogs. Poor us. We had to come across a boat and get seasick and land in the winter. And these wonderful Native Americans took care of us and shared their land with us, which of course isn't true at all. We took it. Not only did we take it, we treated them terribly and we corralled them into small little reservations, pockets of land that we deemed were theirs. They were theirs to begin with, I think. At any rate, it's one of those juxtapositions. It's, it's a contradiction. One group is happy, but at the expense of another. And so much has been going through my head, so much. You know, I, I have my own trials and tribulations in my personal life, my child abuse and my job loss, Roy, 
Molly dying. And, and I have all of the ways that these things have affected me and make me feel. And there are so many things I would love to say. So many stories I want to share. And I have to think sometimes about how those stories are going to affect all the people that are affected by the stories, right? I've talked about my former friend, Doug, and how we had a very tumultuous connection. And I ran into some family members of his recently. And, you know, you get a full picture of somebody and the role they played in your life becomes a bit more complicated because you see the roles they play in other people's lives. And how do you reconcile the good and the bad? And how do you move forward? And how do you make sure everybody is treated fairly or has justice if they deserve justice? And it triggers in me a little bit of victim shaming where sometimes the people that have suffered the loss have to be quiet and endure it to protect the perpetrator. And sometimes it's not that black and white. As I mentioned with the podcast and in efforts to increase listenership on the website, now I have two or three episodes that are there. And one of them outlines my childhood sexual abuse. And I've gotten a lot of comments there. And primarily there are people thanking me for just being open about sharing it. But I have had a couple of comments where they're very, very sort of upset that I don't name my abuser or name the role this person had in my life. And anytime abuse is within a family or within a family dynamic, sadly, a lot of the responsibility for managing the fallout from that abuse falls on the victim. And my family is no different. I have a family full of generational abuse. And so we all play a part, don't we? We all have a piece of the dance that we do. It reminds me of that scene in Pitch Perfect where one of the characters starts singing a, a bit differently than anyone was expecting, and it throws them all off a little bit. And that's sometimes how I feel about my role in keeping the identity of my abuser out of the public eye for now. You know, it's a choice that I've made. And does that make me disingenuous or not less than honest? Maybe. It's not for me to say. I don't feel it makes me less than honest. I am as honest as I can be. I may be leaving out some details, but I'm certainly not changing or covering up others. So 4th of July, I remember during COVID when there were no fireworks, so many things environmentally got better during COVID. Air pollution, water pollution, just so many things. You know, when, when people stopped interfering with the earth, it reverts to its normal healthy self. And it was interesting for me to watch, to see canals become clear because there was no boats in them and to see skies bluer than they'd ever been because there was no airplanes flying all around them. I mean, it was, it was just pretty amazing. And I feel that way about everything. Sometimes COVID has had these long lasting effects on a lot of what we do. Another thing that's come up for me with 4th of July and in the juxtaposition of what are we celebrating and who are we hurting by celebrating it is my desire in my life to keep things the same. So the week I'm recording this, my podcast episode talked about that, about my panic-stricken desire to keep things the same as they were the day that Molly died. I talked about Jack because it was his dance recital weekend. So I talked about, am I just recreating the life I had, hoping to get it right this time? And that is one of my big fears to not do. I did not have Jack to try again. <laughs> I sometimes don't know why I had Jack, just the voices in my head said I was supposed to. I look at so many things in my life that are exactly the same as they were at the time that Molly died and the years leading up to it. Track camp, which just finished. My job at VLAX, which I just finished. You know, I've maintained a lot of things in my life that were in my life prior to her death. CrossFit and my relationship to CrossFit. One of the biggest things that, that has occurred, and it occurred right around the time I'm recording this, early June, is that the Molly B Foundation became an official 501c3. 
So for those not in the know with nonprofits, you can have a nonprofit and at the state level, it's recognized by the state IRS. You get an EIN, like a business number, and you're an, I've been an official New Hampshire nonprofit for since I started the Molly B Foundation two years ago, three years ago. We had the Molly B Scholarship Fund before that, but I just did that like, like a DBA account, like a doing business as account. My social security number, you know, it wasn't a separate entity. So you can fundraise and do certain things, but there are lots and lots of fundraising opportunities that you are not privy to until you are a 501c3. So I'm at the point now where I have all my ducks in, in order, all my ducks in a row. And the only thing I have to do now is get started. And this is where the more things change, the more they stay the same version of Barb comes in. I got all the mail. The postmark was for the IRS for the 501c3 was May 23rd. And for those of you that don't remember, May 23rd is the date of Molly B. the Musical. And so it's not lost on me that in my mailbox on that day, well, postmark that day anyway, was all the paperwork from the IRS proclaiming that Molly B. was official. It means a lot to me because I want to find meaningful ways to remember her. And so what happened this weekend at Jack's dance recital is I met a family. So one of the things that the foundation does is provides dance opportunities at Concord Dance Academy for somebody that may not be able to afford them. And we've had a couple of little girls now for five or six years. And, you know, they come from families that will never be able to afford these kinds of things. And I just know how helpful movement and music and the arts are for children and how wonderful it is at processing emotions and all of it. You forget for a little while what's going on. You just caught up in the music. And so I received a call from Celeste a couple of weeks back saying that there was a family going through a tumultuous time and they were competition girls and they were going to have to stop. And, you know, this was a family stretched right to its limits. And I think about adolescent girls going through difficult times and how do they cope with their crazy families of whom they have no control over, right? They dance or they are busy in their activities. And so it was really a no brainer to volunteer to step up and support these girls through the Molly B Foundation. So at the recital, I got to meet them and give hugs to the girls. And I met their mom and she just kept asking me, what can I do? What can I do to repay you? What can I do? How can I be of support to you? And my big answer to her was just to take care of herself, that Molly's mission was to make people happy. And by allowing me to help her, her girls could continue to do something that made them happy, that gave them respite from the day-to-day -day struggles of their life. And she was just insistent on how do I help? What can I do? And it was very moving to me because there are a lot of people in the world that are very happy to take. And she really wanted to make it right. And again, I told her again and again, take care of yourself, be happy, you know, create good memories with your girls. Remember Molly, learn about her. So I got to talk about Molly in a way that isn't, oh, she's talking about her dead kid again, which is sometimes I get there. So as I talk about these things, I get this nervous tummy. And I was in with my coaching mentor there, coaching by Carolina. She's my entrepreneurial mindset coach, but she really is a therapist. I'll tell you right now, we, we got into it deep the other day. So I was having one of those days. Carolina pointed out to me that I am the queen of the self-fulfilling prophecy, that I decide ahead of time I'm going to fail. And I set up my life so that I do fail. But I fail in such a way that I can always lay blame somewhere else, not on someone else in terms of another person, but a circumstance or a situation. And I learned that my go-to emotion, my comfort emotion is anger. Now that, that feels new to me because I've always felt like my comfort emotion was fear, like an, an anxiety and running all around. But lately I've just been angry and I know that you get what you give. And if I 
And so if I keep giving angry vibes to the universe, I'm going to get them back. And I've had a lot of situations that haven't been pleasant in 2023. I've had wonderful things too, but so I think to myself, how do I just stop being mad when I feel like I have so much that I'm mad about? So I had this long, this long, long, it was an hour meeting with Carolina. So I knew that I would have to meet with Carolina in the car and my morning just fell apart. And then I got 10 minutes into my drive to Amesbury for coaching. And I had to turn around because I forgot my computer. And so I was just frustrated and just so, just so frustrated and angry. And the morning had not gone the way I wanted it to. And even three or four months ago, but definitely at the turn of the new year, when, when I came home from Florida, so full of rage and took like a 50 day hiatus from alcohol and just needed to reset instead of just staying angry and be like, yep, my day's ruined. Oh, well, that's just my life. And letting it perpetuate into a day full of anger. I took a breath and turned around and got my computer. And so I had to sort of cut short my phone meeting with Carolina rather than 90 minutes. We got an hour. If there was ever a time we needed 90 minutes, it would have been Tuesday. We got talking and I went through it all, but I realized, I did realize this is a time that I would have jumped into being angry and blamed my failure of a day on 50 different things. So that was a big jump for me. And so we got talking about all of the different things that I don't do. So she gives me specific things to do week to week. This is your assignment. This is your assignment. And I seldom follow through on them. My very, very big go-to excuse is, well, I got too busy or if I wasn't doing all the housework or if I wasn't running around, Okay, well, but I do those things. I wake up and I look at the messy house and I clean it because I feel like I can't function in a messy house. I could also pick up my crap and go sit at Virginia's and work there and get stuff done, right? Like, like there are other things I could do that I don't. I fall back into this sort of pattern of, well, not my fault, but I'm just going to prove the world right. I suck. It's this really self-sabotaging, self-negative behavior that absolves me from guilt. It's not my fault. I suck. Poor me. So <laughs> if Roy's listening, he'd be like, see, you are a victim. You play the victim card all the time. And maybe on some levels, that's an accurate assumption by somebody. So here are some things that sort of came to mind in the conversation. So Carolina and I are talking about the Molly B Foundation specifically, me setting up my office, me setting up the Molly B Foundation, and me really getting the garage gym put together in the barn in the garage just cleaned out. These are the physical things. The office in the garage have been a year. No progress in a year, zero, actually almost two years now. And that's just not okay. That's clearly choices I'm making in my life. I'm continuing to live this sort of disheveled, disorganized life. And the other thing is really fundraising efforts that are big for the Molly B Foundation. So we got talking about it and she's like, well, did you add to your list? And I just looked at her a bit dumbfounded. So my one assignment last week was to continue making a list of ways, events and activities I could do raise awareness to and make the Molly B Foundation successful. And so, you know, golf tournament, variety show, you know, raffles, just different things, different fundraising events that I could put on activities that would bring awareness to the foundation and what it stands for and raise money. And I started writing it enthusiastically in my appointment last week. So when she asked me, when she brought it up, I just looked at her. I'm like, I did nothing. I, I did nothing. And I didn't, I did nothing. I keep notes. I'm going to, if you're watching, I'm holding up a pad of paper on this little pad of paper and I have them all over the place. I have one here. I'm going to hold up another one now. And I have these scraps of paper that I take notes from my meetings. And I have a big notebook that I used to compile everything into. And of course, I just, I let it go. Oh, I was too busy. Well, except I chose not to do those things and chose to do other things. Sometimes I have the choice. Do I wash the dishes or let them sit in the sink? And sometimes I don't have a choice. Jack is hungry and he needs to nurse. So 
but it was a bit mind boggling to me that I just blew it off. I just didn't do it. And so Carolina is just sort of looking at me. And so I started to get this real nervous stomach. And she asked me, asks me a lot, how are you feeling right now? What's coming to mind? And so we're talking about the Molly B Foundation and we're talking about the 501c3 coming. I didn't know I had it yet then. And I said, you know, I'm just getting a nervous tummy. And so she asked me to, where are you nervous and what comes to mind? And I couldn't think of anything in the conversation. I couldn't think of anything. Nothing came to mind for me. But we got talking about, she said for me, when I start to feel these things, these physical sensations of anxiety or dread or whatever around the Molly B Foundation or whatever it is I'm working on, to sit with it and to really see where it is. And so she started to describe a process, which I call EMDR. And EMDR is a therapy, I've talked about it before, it's successful in helping people process trauma. So rather than talk therapy where you try to relive your trauma, you don't relive the trauma. That's just going to re-traumatize you. But you look at how the trauma is affecting you now, and you use the EMDR to manage the symptoms that you received from the trauma itself. So I used the example about driving by the hospital and I couldn't drive by it for the long time. And utilizing EMDR allowed me to manage the feelings that hospital evoked in me so that I didn't have to drive six miles out of my way to go anywhere beyond the hospital, that I, I could drive there in ways that didn't add mileage to my car. So I jumped in. I, I know what you're describing. It's EMDR. And so we had a wonderful conversation about it. So I got out of the car because I was driving to Amesbury. I jumped, went right into the gym. I coached a class. As the class was over and everyone left, I'm setting up my computer because I'm, I have two hours there and I was going to, I wrote a blog. And so all of a sudden I'm in my kitchen as a little girl. I'm in my kitchen as a little girl with the same sort of nervous tummy. And I'm looking around. That's all I remember. I remember the gray tile of the floor, the yellow of the kitchen table. So I know that I'm, I'm young, elementary age anyway, sometime in elementary school, not yet middle. I'm little in the memory. I feel like I'm sitting on the floor. That's my perspective, looking up at everything. And everything around me is very chaotic. And I have the same feeling in my stomach, like my mind just went there. So I sat for a minute and the pervasive thought for me at that time was I need to always have a way out. I need to have a way out. There has to be a way out. So if you think of my childhood, I have like the picture perfect to the outside family, a mom, a dad, siblings. I live in a moderately nice house, not a beautiful house, but not a bad house. I go to school, I get good grades, whatever. You know, my life seems fine, but on the inside, it's utterly chaotic and terrorizing. There's my parents' dysfunction, and then there's my abuser and all of these things going on in reality. And I remember always thinking, especially when things started to seem not okay, and I would get that undercurrent of tension from the adults in my life, I often thought I need an escape plan. Like, like don't put all your eggs in one basket because you get, could get stuck in the basket. And that was huge to me. I quickly shared this with Carolina. And then as I was sharing that, another piece came to me and it was really specific to relationships. And I looked at, I looked at my mom and then I looked at several of the female relatives on my mother's side of the family and their relationships with people. And sort of what became apparent to me is that what was necessary was some sort of escape plan. So I always knew I needed an escape plan from my home. I got my escape plans by signing up for things. So if I was busy, I wouldn't get stuck at home. But I realized that in my entire life, every friendship or relationship had an escape plan. That if you throw all your eggs in one basket, you just stand to lose. And anytime I have really truly thrown all my eggs in one basket, it's blown up in my face. Now, does that mean I should continue to have escape plans? No. I think what it means is I have to learn how to deal with something blowing up in my face, right? So I'll give some examples. So my mother, you know, in, in her troubling dysfunctional marriage to my dad, had my bio dad and he was her escape. And so they would ski and they would hike 
and he would suggest books for her to read. And he was just this little bubble of safety for her, a respite from the reality of her life and the chaos in it. I, of course, watched this as a child. Those respites were breaks for me as well. The number of times I went skiing or I went hiking or I went overnight with my mom to see Uncle Tom is what we called him then. I grew up knowing that if things were really bad, you could always just sort of escape. And a lot of my friendships and my overnights and the activities I got into functioned that way for me. I always had an exit plan, always. So I got thinking about relationships in my life and you know, romantic primarily, but also friendships. And I would get to a point where I was at the tipping point of really falling in love with a person, like the infatuation had worn away a bit. And now do I jump in? Do I really commit to this or do I not? The process of committing brought up incredible anxiety for me. So I either had to end the relationship or step back from it or have an exit plan. Okay. So two things that were significant in and around my starting this podcast in the time of my life, you know, with Molly's death and all that's been going through my mind lately are Kenny and Roy. And then friendship wise, I look at Amy, Robin, and Stephanie. I remember being so desperately in love with Kenny in our early years. And a lot of my love for him was that he seemed to fulfill both sides for me. He was the safe, predictable guy, and he was fun and adventurous at the same time. Kenny and I truly, truly just had fun living day to day for the first you know, 10 years of our relationship and then marriage. It really was just fun all the time. I can remember, remember people letting me know, you know, he's, he can be immature, you, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I just didn't care because we were fine. And I really put all my eggs in, in that basket. He was the first person I was truly, truly faithful to. I didn't even think about anyone else. And I had some longstanding connections across the country, people I saw once a year. I had these little, little pockets of escape set up for myself. And they all just went away. And I remember the, these people in my life were like, wow, Higgins, good for you. Like it was a noticeable thing. All my eggs in one basket. So about the time our life started to fall apart with financial ruin, which I didn't know about until our house was four days away from being auctioned, I met Amy and Roy and that relationship came into play. I remember really truly jumping into my friendship with Amy at the expense of several other friendships. My friendship with her and later on with Roy cost me neighborhood friendships, cost me professional friendships. A lot of the parents in our friend group of Gracie and Morgan dissipated and I just didn't see it. And I thought that this was where I belonged, all my eggs in the Amy basket. Then things blow up and fall apart. My friendship with Amy blows up. I find out all the financial ruin going on. At this time, Roy swoops in, yes? And we begin the process of getting him his kids and we enter into our relationship and our affair. So I put all my eggs in one basket with Kenny and we suffer financial ruin, really terrible financial ruin. So that was a mistake, right? So the timing is perfect. In comes Amy and Roy. So then I put all my eggs in the friendship basket and that was a disaster. And so I end the friendship and I have a year that I've talked about that was this sort of respite from the craziness of all that was those two. And I start to bring friendships back into my life and things start to sort of settle down and, and get better. I do well at school. Things are just really going well. And then I get with Roy and I don't, I don't put all my eggs in, in one basket. A year goes by, I lose my job, especially after the job loss when my, my whole life becomes sort of a shambles pile. The last thing I'm going to do is trust anybody. Kenny's doing everything he can at this time, or I thought so, to help us financially. I'm spending all this time with Roy. 
working 50 jobs to pay the bills and all this. Finally, after like six years, Roy is like, look, it's either my way or the highway. And I, I don't blame him. We had gone on again, off again for all these years. So I do it. I get an apartment. Kenny and I separate. I put all my eggs in the Roy basket, all of them. I go away with him. Nobody wanted me to go away. I went anyway. And what happens? Molly dies. Now, Molly didn't die because I went away, but I put all my eggs in, his, in that basket. And when I needed him the most, when I needed that basket to work for me, it disappeared. So I shared this with, with Carolina because to me, it's pretty significant. It's very, very big feedback that putting all my eggs in one basket, not having an escape plan remains a dangerous thing to do. And of course, that's not true at all. When I look at my friendship with Robin, same thing. She became my entire life and every friend I had was through her. So when that fell apart, I lost it all. There was no escape plan with Robin. She was my friend. She was my bestie. And it was a very public friendship for a long time. And when we stopped being friends, every other acquaintance I had disappeared. It was her side or my side. Same with Stephanie in the charter school. I threw myself into that school, working the school. You know, I pulled my friend Amy in with me and I stopped everything I was doing with my family. All my spiritual mentoring work took a back seat. I just jumped in all my eggs in one basket. So here's what this tells me. Trauma and all of the things we do to cope with our trauma powerfully dictates how we behave and how we execute behaviors and thought plans and process information for our whole entire life. We run the tapes in our head again and again and again. The second thing I've learned is that along with my self-sabotage, which I've been noticing a lot since Molly's death, along with my, I'm going to prove them right. I'm going to you know, wake up mad at Kenny because he didn't do X, Y, and Z. And I'm going to get so mad that I'm not going to do what I want to do. And, and I, everyone's right. I've just proved him right. I'm terrible. All of that self-sabotage, but it's a much bigger picture than that for me anyway. So I think on a subconscious level, I put my eggs in a basket that I know is doomed because once it blows up, there's my excuse for all my failures, right? Well, that's why I failed. This happened or this happened or this happened. It was a really profound sort of realization for me. And I messaged Carolina, like two pretty long messages when I had all these going through my head in my empty CrossFit gym on a beautiful Friday afternoon. And she responded right back that this was huge. This was huge. And so she gave me an assignment because, you know, I can spend all this time wallowing around in all the 9,000 reasons why I'm not successful, right? And her assignment was essentially 30 minutes a day, do something that will help make the Molly B Foundation successful. So she's focused a lot on the foundation because so much of Molly is the driving force in my life. And ultimately, I want a super successful foundation. I look at other nonprofits and the things they do. However, when people have these successful nonprofits, they work on them 40 hours a week. It's what they do all the time. And I don't. When I look at my schedule this week, I'm, I'm here, there, and everywhere. A lot of it now, though, a lot of my busyness is podcast-related, which in my mind is the same sort of track the podcast, the blog, writing the book, Molly B, the foundation. To me, it's sort of one general track. And I think at some point I'll redefine these things and they'll, they'll flow more together. But it was just incredibly eye-opening. It was this eye-opening experience. Like, wow. So, you know, I'm left a bit befuddled. Like, what do I do now? <laughs> so as I've been pondering all of this, as I've been sort of sitting in this and trying to be mindful and present to take time to just process the information. So another way I've done this is, I'm a midnight scroller on my phone. When I don't have any alcohol before bed, I sleep much better. I wake up a million times, but I fall right back to sleep. When I've had alcohol, I tend to have like a two hour chunk of time in the middle of the night that I'm awake. And so my go-to is to scroll on my phone. 
So instead of doing that, what I've been doing is just lying still. Now, granted, when I say what I've been doing, it's been like three, four nights, but that's significant. I just leave my phone on the floor. I don't plug it in. And so in the process of doing this, I've just been able to sort of think things through and really come to grips with the fact that this dance I do, Carolina has a picture and it's like a infinity. It's like a figure eight. You, you keep circling back and circling back. Mine is like 10 infinities into a flower <laughs> and you circle every which way. There's every which way but loose, right? There was a song, Every Which Way But Loose. It went with a Clint Eastwood movie. It was just relevant to me in terms of my current process with all the things that have happened to me in my life. This was pretty big news, my escape plan. Roy was my escape plan. He was my escape plan from my life with Kenny. And it worked. He was a wonderful escape plan. And then when the time came that I'd put all my eggs in the basket, I didn't have an escape plan. Molly died. I was just sitting in the rubble for months and months. And my escape plan, who I had put all my eggs in, wasn't a part of my life anymore. So I've had to really reevaluate and reinvent. I don't have any relationships right now. I'm not involved romantically with anybody. I haven't been since, you know, all the Roy stuff. It's allowed me to step back and look at all of the thought processes that led me into those relationships and allowed me to put up with behaviors and treatments, to think it was okay to be treated the way I was, and to think it was okay for me to treat people the way that I treated them. In all of this self-examination and self-reflection, some of the things that have triggered me lately make a lot more sense. So Roy sort of cutting me out of his life was a huge trigger. And a lot of it was initially fear-based. I was, I was panic-stricken, so utterly panic-stricken in those first months. I'm not panic-stricken anymore. I have, I've stepped back enough now that I can see the bigger picture. I'm up higher on the mountain. <laughs> I feel bad for that, Barb. But things trigger me. My triggers make me incredibly angry. So that's been a trigger for me. Anytime I hear of somebody being treated poorly for who they are, what they believe in, that's a huge trigger for me because we should, all, we should all be able to believe and feel the way we want to. As I talked about in last week's episode, the ways that we all look for community, right? We all look to fit in someplace and how so much of a lot of the issues around politics, around women's bodies and how they're being so dictated by the government and how so much of the transgender movement specific to women's athletics hurts me because I feel like, like as a cisgendered female, once again, my vagina isn't good enough. These triggers are huge. And I think that they're much bigger than the issue. All things that are difficult cause growth. Anything that creates friction ultimately is a chance to grow and learn. I saw a, a quote today by Nelson Mandela that basically said, I have never lost. I either win or I learn and try again. What a great way to look at your quote unquote losses. And so I look at the political strife. I look at these white male politicians that are hell bent on controlling women. And they do it in the name of, I don't even know, sometimes they just do it, I guess, religion. And I get so angry. Like, why, why should the government dictate my body in a way that boys' bodies aren't dictated? You know, I look at so many things that just trigger this anger. And I realize that what it comes back to for me, and I have to share this with Carolina too, <laughs> One of the biggest things that I don't like is being told to be quiet, to not talk, to not share my story, to not have a voice. I can't stand it. It utterly pisses me off. As I've said before, it's one of the things I hate most about the lawsuit is that I took money to shut up. Yeah. <laughs> talk about the victim protecting the perpetrator. Yes. I look at things in the news. I look at all sorts of things that are going on and I see that 
so many groups, so many people, so many organizations, so many movements are so focused on pushing forward and, and being accepted that they don't realize who they're running over and trampling in the process. And this is everywhere. It's not just one specific group or another, it's everywhere. And so I think in my tender state, I'm just easily triggered. <laughs> so where am I going with all of this? I don't know where I'm going with all of this, but just like I felt when we settled Molly's lawsuit, that lawsuit got settled and I realized, all right, she's never coming back, she's dead. So it's, it's either stay a drug addict and an alcoholic, Barbara, and live the rest of your life just like this, or dust, your, dust yourself off, stand up and get busy living. And I feel like I'm in a bit of that same place now. That was a huge turning point for me. So I have a 501c3. I have a board of directors that are waiting for me to ask them to do things. I have some other people that would love to be more involved. I have a list of ideas and resources. The only thing standing in front of me, making the Molly B Foundation a viable, well-known, successful organization is me. Ah, all my eggs in one basket. So I, I've tried to apply these things to the things I've endeavored to do or the things I say I want to do and failed at. So here's another quick example. I had over a thousand downloads in the month of April. It was like a huge spike. Like, like I went from like 700 in March to like 1100 in April. So now I'm back to in the 800s for May. And what I've noticed is for the month of May, I didn't push the podcast at all. You know, put the little notice, my little graphic that Jay sends in my story once. I used to do these posts and all this, nothing. So what am I secretly doing here? What am I doing, Barbara Jean Higgins? Oh, I'm doing well, so I better back off because we can't have me succeeding now. I guess I'm just owning the fact that sometimes I'm just my own worst enemy. And I think anyone that knows me would be like, duh. <laughs> and how many times have you already talked about this in your podcast, Barbara? <laughs> Maybe a hundred. But sitting here alone in my house and lying in, in my bed in the middle of the night, alone with my thoughts, sitting on the rower and not listening to music, just listening to my thoughts for 40 minutes, a long time. I realized that I'm at a turning point again. It's that Green Day song, another turning point, a fork stuck in the road. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood and be one traveler long I stood. So here I am. And the big here I am for me right now goes back to Molly again and the Molly B Foundation and really becoming entrepreneurial in spirit. I don't like taking people's money. It makes me uncomfortable. But, you know, if you want a foundation to work, you got to find people that want to give you their money. And there are people that want to donate. There are people that have financial reasons for donating. Even if they don't particularly connect with your cause, if it's a good cause, they'll donate to it. Because why not donate to a good cause? So I have to open my heart and my mind up to these things. So one of the ways I've sort of begun doing that is I'm taking a course with KK the workshop I'm doing is called The Content Compass, and Emily Aborn and Karen Kenny are both entrepreneurial women who do amazing things. KK is a spiritual mentor, and she's got 55,000 certificates in 55,000 different things. <laughs> I'm exaggerating, but you know what I mean. She's done a lot of things and done a lot of studying, and her, she endeavors to help people connect spiritually with their purpose and their story and finding meaning in their lives. Emily is more of an entrepreneurial coach. She's a content creator. She, she can help you sort of hone your skills. And together, they're doing a sort of a content compass. It's a workshop on you're learning how to tell your story. And one of the biggest pieces of the workshop so far is paying attention, paying attention to things that happen in your day-to-day -day life. Little things, a little coincidence, someone you run into, something you see, a line in a movie or a TV show you're watching. 
that sometimes there's a story in every little thing. And even if you don't know what the story might be, if something strikes you, you write it down. And when I look at really truly making the Molly B Foundation viable and doable, it all comes back to me. I have great stories and I have no trouble telling them. One of my biggest fears, and I think this is my big block around putting all my eggs in the Molly B Foundation basket, is I feel oftentimes very judged in my hometown, in my community. I feel that people who knew me before Molly died or before I lost my job or have known me you know, for my adult life since moving back here to Concord after college have judgments and look at me as, oh, Barb, oh yeah, what's she going to do now? And, and I know that there are people that look at me that way. You know, I live my life publicly, so I'm going to open myself up to judgment, but I feel very insecure sometimes around anyone ever wanting me to be successful. I think sometimes people enjoy watching others fail. And I've had things happen to me, that whole scenario in Bo with that mean, awful family that got me embarrassed publicly. And I ended up not returning to coach at Bo. It was awful. That was such a humiliating experience. And I think, why would somebody be so mean to another person? Like, I still can't wrap my head around it sometimes. Same with Stephanie and Robin. I look at the words and the actions and the vitriol and it befuddles me. And I know that these insecurities play into my willingness to really jump in with two feet and create a workable foundation. When I look at my task list from Jace, I do all this sort of stuff. I talk to people, I, I find pictures, all of the things that sort of promote me on one level, but like open up a business account, do these little things on this website, change these passwords, all of the logistical things that will make it run smoothly. I just forget, or do I forget? I really think that this is all these little things are my escape hatch. If it doesn't work, I have 50 reasons why it didn't work that ultimately outwardly have nothing to do with me in what I say or how poorly I set up an event and all to do with the lack of my, how I, I didn't take care of all the little details to make my business work. I'm at a turning point. I'm standing here. You're listening to me on 4th of July. I will have time to road race this morning and I will not be going to fireworks in the evening. I really, we still have not reconciled 4th of July. I mean, we've never celebrated it as a family since Molly died. It was our first celebration actually, but you'll be listening on that day and I'll still be probably pondering this very same thing as I am on this rainy June 4th alone in my living room. So these are some of the ways that my life and my decisions affect me still. July is a big month. It's going to be a big Molly B month. If we're in July, then I will have spent the month of June really honing in on my dietary choices and being much more consistent with working out. I will finalize by now the last details of my book and we'll hopefully have a book signing date that I will be sharing, release date and a published date. Hopefully when this day actually arrives, I'll have that list, that list with plans in place and steps being taken to create workable fun events that raise money for the Molly B Foundation. That's what I need to do. I need to put my eggs in the basket. I'll finish by talking a little bit about the 4th of July for me. I know as a little girl, I really loved summer. I loved summer until two episodes of child abuse for me occurred in the summer. And that, you know, sort of dampened it a bit for me. So when I think back to summer and 4th of July, I have a variety of ways I feel. But I live, you know, on the other side of the park that I played in as a child. So fireworks occur at Memorial Field in Concord, just like they did when I was a little girl. Fourth of July itself is no different. There's no parade here. There are fireworks all through the state. So sometimes they're on different nights. Molly's last Fourth of July, we went to a baseball game 
we went to a Fisher Cats game in Manchester and watched the fireworks there. I remember it really well because I was texting with Roy and both Gracie and Molly were really angry at me about it. And I went there because I thought Robin was going to be there. And I was hoping that we'd run into her because she would have been with a group of people. She would have been hard pressed to, you know, be mad at me, but she wasn't there on that particular night. And I remember I was in just such a state, such a state of despair. Another 4th of July I remember is I've talked about Sarah and Philip and how they disappeared on the 4th of July. I think of them every 4th of July, just as I know that their mom must. This will never be a holiday that will be easy for her. It was the end of a life that she knew. I think of the very first 4th of July after Molly died and we were just here at home. I had all these extra track camp shirts and Elaine and Keisha and Rebecca came in tie-dyed shirts and two girls I grew up with, Terry and Michelle Cormier, came over in tie-dyed shirts. We spent the whole day just sort of in the yard. And then we went inside and we pulled the shades and we put on the TV. We didn't go to Memorial Field. We did nothing. We just sat inside and got through the first 4th of July without Molly. And 4th of July since then have not taken on any big meaning for us. My favorite 4th of July memory actually occurred after my job loss. And I was floating in the pool and suddenly I had a yard full of people. And then I had family and we had this amazing day in the yard, cooking food, eating, drinking. And then we all walked up to the Oddfellows home and sat in the lawn for the fireworks. I have so many wonderful pictures of it. Jenna Nazaro and Shawnee, all my neighborhood family, Lon Lon and Jonathan and teeny tiny Jonah and her parents. Just such a, such a wonderful, fun 4th of July as they all should be. And that's the one sometimes I cling to. So I have to create some traditions for Jack, but I do know that Jack won't look at the 4th of July as some celebratory event for overcoming those horrible Britons to allow us to be free <laughs> so we could do even worse things to the Native Americans whose land we stole. I, this is when I just go round and round. Jack will know. Jack will know that the circle of life is seldom simple and often complex and seldom really a clear circle. Sometimes it's an infinity figure eight. Sometimes it's an oval. Who knows? But he will know always that there's always another side to every celebration and we have to pay attention to that side too. So I hope this wasn't all too disorganized and boring. I feel sometimes I just truly need to share where I'm at and what it's like to be me, an almost 60-year-old woman who still every day relives the ramifications of her child abuse, relives the ramifications of some of the choices that behavior created in her, is learning to forgive not only the grown-up wrinkly Barb, but the little girl Barb and all the Barbs in between. And then when she finally thinks her life might be together, <laughs> meets a guy and loses a job and enter enters into a whole new chaotic existence. And then just when she thinks maybe she's pulling that together, her daughter dies. <laughs> and now here I am. I'm at the next, maybe I'm pulling it together. So my big goal here on this 4th of July, 2023 is just to continue the small steps forward that I started at the end of June, 2018 when we settled our lawsuit and we knew that Molly would never wake up. I just need to keep moving forward one tiny little step at a time. So that's what I'll do. Yay. So in ending over the next several weeks, I'll have every other episode or so, or maybe every two or three episodes, I'll have some guests. And my primary reason for having guests is a more to talk about, right? And B, I'm a firm believer that the universe sends people to us on purpose and that we talk to people we're supposed to talk to. And so I want to give a little heads up that my first guest is going to be a girl named Libby, who I coached when I worked at Bo. She ran for me and she started a podcast about a year ahead of this one. 
I love it. I listen all the time. Knowing her or thinking I knew her, watching her grow up and then listening to her thoughts and reflections on times that and events that I shared with her has been wonderfully eye-opening and really supports what this whole podcast was about. That for every action, there's a reaction, right? There's always another side to every coin and one doesn't have to be better than the other. Sometimes they're just different. And I've learned so much about Libby. So I'm excited to have her on because she's terrific. And her podcast is, is a bit more lighthearted than mine, a bit more whimsical, but you know, she's 22. So <laughs> she's got, she's in her whimsical time, right? I'm excited. And then I'm, I'll have all, all manner of guests on professionals, men, women, grievers, therapists, trauma specialists, angel moms, you know, you name it and they'll be on here. And I'm excited about that. So happy 4th of July. Be good to yourself today. After you're good to yourself, be good to someone else. And as always, have a good day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting the podcast. Feel free to leave a review and to share my stories with your friends. Please reach out with your own stories. I love connecting with my listeners. If you want to see what I'm up to next, you can find me on Instagram at Barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, a thousandtinysteps.com. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter, a weekly way to find out what's up in the life of Barb Higgins.